0: MDMA overuse tends to be a self-correcting problem because you know you're just not getting anything out of it. you know, you're trying to do it and you're getting all these negative effects. you're not getting the pleasure anymore. And um, for some people, they actually lose the magic of MDMA forever. And again, this is something that's never been studied that I think is really fascinating. Um, you know, at some point, like people seem to just like hit a wall. Welcome to
1: Science for the People. I'm Bethany Berkshire. At this point, if you are plugged into the science zeitgeist, and I know you as our listeners definitely are, you're aware that there are new drugs on the scene for some mental illnesses that have baffled people for a really long time. Ketamine, for example, is now being used for depression, and you might have read about therapeutic use of psychedelics for addiction or PTSD. But what about ecstasy specifically? Not LSD, not psilocybin, ecstasy. To many people, it might still be just a club drug. But to many therapists now, it's an exciting idea, a potential aid to help some people who desperately need it. What is it? And how is it different from other drugs out there? To help us out, we have Rachel Neuer, freelance journalist whose work has appeared before in the New York Times, Scientific American, and Nature. You will have heard her voice before when she was on the podcast to talk about her previous book on poaching. Now, she's here to talk about her new book, I Feel Love, MDMA, and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Welcome, Rachel. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. And also to our listeners, this is just a content note. Uh, One of the things that we will be discussing later on in the program is um, sexual assault. And when we get there, I will give you a content note. And if you need to skip it, you can skip it. And if you need to skip this whole episode, you can do that too. No one will judge you. Okay, so, Rachel, first, your previous book was about poaching, and I actually interviewed Mm -hmm. you about that book, um, and it was very good. It was also a total downer, Um, like no (laughs) offense. Yeah, it's it's not the pleasantest of subjects, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, But it's also very, very far from this current book, which is about methylene dioxymethamphetamine, aka MDMA, or ecstasy. Um, And you are also someone who generally specializes in nature and travel and food. What sparked your journey from poaching to ecstasy?
0: (laughs) Uh, I guess there's the short answer would be ecstasy sparked my journey into ecstasy. (laughs) But uh, there is a connection with the poaching. I mean, you just mentioned that it is a total downer. And after spending more than a decade writing about animals dying, I was... uh, Seeking a change of scenery, let's say, I felt like I was being pigeonholed a little bit as the journalist who always wrote about dead animals. And it was pretty depressing. I sort of felt like I was telling the same story over and over. You know, people are killing animals, nobody's doing anything about it. And I really just was craving a break from that and also a new intellectual challenge. This was the pandemic. I was here in New York City. It was the height of lockdown in April 2020. And um, I don't know if other people experienced this, but I was just feeling quite loopy and sort of out of it and, um, you know, thinking more deeply and maybe philosophically about my future and my purpose and, you know, what is going to give me satisfaction. Also, what is going to be the most useful thing I can do for the world at large, and I was actually on MDMA while I was thinking about this question one night. Um, my husband and I took MDMA just to kind of like mix things up and bring a bit of joy into this otherwise really dark time. And suddenly in pops into my head, MDMA, you can write about MDMA. Nobody's written an MDMA book. Um, so I had this idea sitting on my couch while on ecstasy. And then the next day, uh, you know, sober, of course, I started looking into it and just thought, you know, this is actually more than like a silly drug idea. This is a good idea.
1: And I think there does need to be a book about MDMA. So as you noted just now, but also you note in your book um, that you yourself take MDMA recreationally. Um, I really appreciate how transparent you are about that. um, Because as you know, there's often a no-win situation when people talk about drug use. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. In the words sure. of of a for very sure. famous person, uh, you can like <laughs> not inhale. <laughs> um, and so I was wondering, do you think I mean, it sounds like it does. But do you think your personal experience influences kind of the angle that your book takes?
0: Yeah, I tried not to like, okay, so poached, for example, my previous book, I was in it a lot. Um, it was kind of a like travel journey um, into this, you know, dark wildlife trade. This book, I specifically left myself out except in the introduction because I felt like there was such rich material that I didn't need to be in the story. I just, I could get out of the way and let, you know, MDMA sort of speak for itself. Um, that said, yes, I am an, a recreational user of MDMA. I do it once every three or four months. Um, and I've been doing it since, I don't know, maybe 2015 or so. So, yeah, it's been a while. I have a relationship with this drug. Uh, in terms of how that colored my reporting, uh, I guess the biggest thing is that all the crazy stuff I heard in the late '80s and the '90s, growing up here in the U.S. as a dare kid, I just knew that wasn't true. Like, I'm not going to, you know, jump out of a window or uh, you know, holes in my brain or any of this like, like just hysterical information that I and so many other people in my you know educational cohort at that time were fed. I knew it just it wasn't true from personal experience and from talking to other people who go to raves and who do it recreationally. So, you know, I came in, um, you know, knowing that the propaganda I'd been fed as a kid, uh, you know, wasn't founded in reality and wondering why that is. So, you know, that gave me kind of a critical curiosity to dive into the whole thing.
1: Um, I also wanted to kind of bring up a thread that runs throughout your book. And it's not even a thread. It is a person. Specifically, it's Michael Pollan, um, whose book, How to Change Your Mind, was focused heavily on LSD and psilocybin. And it made a really huge splash, both in the public mind um, and also in the world of therapeutics. And I was wondering, why did you decide to do an MDMA book? And why did you think it was particularly needed? How do you feel that your work kind of adds or differs? What is the relationship between these books? Yeah, there's um
0: that's such a good question because it was a very big part of um, my book and my journey to do a book. Um, so after I had that revelation on the couch, um I was like, oh, Michael Pollan wrote that book. I need to make sure that that book isn't this book that I'm thinking of. Um, I actually hadn't read the book yet, so I, went out and I got the book. And that was one of my fir- the first things I did before putting together my book proposal was read his book. Um, he mentions ecstasy like twice in passing. He's like, oh, yeah. And there's this other thing called ecstasy, but it's different. And I didn't do it um, because XYZ. So he really did not get into MDMA at all. Um, so that said, once I did put together my book proposal, I was... Um, my agent was sending it out to editors. And... I swear, half of the editors came back and were like, "Oh, Michael Pollan already wrote this book. Why do we need another book on Michael, like that Michael Pollan already wrote?" Um, which just isn't true. MDMA is a completely different drug. It has its own unique history, its own culture, um, and its own therapeutic value. Um, but that just wasn't something that people were kind of like getting. Um, then in May 2021, I had already gotten like a dozen rejections on this proposal. Um, the first phase three clinical trial of MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD came out and I wrote about it for the New York times. It was like a huge story. Um, all kinds of people were talking about it, including Michael Pollan. And suddenly editors were interested. They're like, Oh wait, there's something to this MDMA thing, which I was like, yeah, duh. But, you know, you can't like force people to get that before they kind of get it on their own. Um, And I really felt like MDMA especially needed this treatment because, you know, it is unique in its clinical applications. It does have this great history. It does have all these amazing characters attached to it, but it's also almost certainly going to be the first psychedelic that is approved by the FDA. I mean, it's going to, the, they're preparing the application right now for FDA approval of as a therapy for PTSD. So, you know, assuming things go well, it's going to beat psilocybin, LSD, all these other things to the punch in terms of um, legal clinical use, which um, for those who haven't read Michael Pollan's book, it's almost entirely about psilocybin and LSD.
1: Um. So, as you mentioned, you've used MDMA rec- recreationally. And of course, you are not the only one because as you know, <laughs> humans have been finding ways to change their life experiences throughout history. And I mean, you know, we often talk about this as though it's a human thing. It is not a human thing. <laughs> when animals get the chance to get drunk or get high. They will do it. Yep, yep, <laughs> um, but yep. humans have been changing their life experiences throughout history with alcohol, opium, cannabis, anything that can get us high. We will strip trees. We will, you know, sniff toads. We will do whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and I love how you point out that many ancient and even modern religious rituals have drugs as components. And I was also really surprised to find out that early Christianity might have as well. Um, is there evidence that that happened? Oh, yeah. Okay. So
0: basically my reporting for that part of the book was based a lot on this excellent book by um, Brian, I'm going to say his name wrong, Mura Rescu. Okay. It's called The Immortality Key, and it's all about this new research on um, the early use in Christianity and um, religions predating Christianity of psychedelic substances for kind of tapping into this mystical personal experience with god and i think historically it's been a great drugs have been a great way for us to access this spiritual realm that you know in our day-to-day sober life we just aren't in touch with um you know i don't know about you but i'm always just kind of in my head thinking about what i need to do and drugs are just this kind of um shortcut to access this like deep philosophical experience that so many of us crave. But unless you're like a professionally trained like Buddhist monk, or I don't know, you're meditating in a cave for days on end, like most of us don't have access to. Um, So I think that's really appealing. I think drugs also are a way to bring us together. Uh, Some of my most beautiful experiences have been on the dance floor, you know, with other ecstasy users, like we're all feeling the music, feels like this wonderful sense of bonding and community and really just
1: a spiritual experience. So we're talking about, you know, drug use in history, which you have a little bit of in the book. Um, and most of the time, these are kind of natural products, right? Like alcohol happens. We don't have to make it <laughs> yes, happen. Ovium <for> sure. <laughs> happens. Cannabis happens. Tobacco. Um, yep. And tobacco happens. Um, but MDMA is not something you can get <laughs> off a tree, though tree bark is involved. Um, And I was wondering if you could go into a little bit of where MDMA came from, because it was originally synthesized in the pharmaceutical company Merck. What were they looking for when they started kind of putting methyl groups on meth? So uh, Merck in
0: 1912 on Christmas Eve patented MDMA, but they were not looking for any mind-altering substances. MDMA was just this chemical intermediary on the way to getting to some cl- blood clotting agent they were interested in. Uh, as far as who actually first discovered the psychoactive properties of MDMA, we don't know, but there's really tantalizing history, including with Merck. So, the chemist who patented it, he wound up dying a few years later in World War One. But then in the 20s a new Merck chemist came back to it and he made these like cryptic um notes in his little Merck journal or whatever being like this is a really interesting substance and we should like really check it out. But weirdly it doesn't say if he was experimenting on rats, if he was experimenting in a petri dish, if he was experimenting on himself. We don't know. Um the Merck archives are allegedly supposedly open for journalists, for researchers. But when I reached out to Merck to try to dig into all this, they were very cagey. And then they eventually just stopped responding to my emails. So whether or not anyone at Merck actually discovered the psychoactive properties of MDMA is probably um, you know, a mystery that um, will endure. Or maybe um, if they let somebody into their archives, we'll get an answer in the future.
1: Also somebody who reads German, there's that. Yeah, there, there's that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is interesting because after Merck patented it, and then somebody came back to it in the 30s, um, this kind of launched a bit of a dark chapter in pharmacological history in which a lot of scientists tested drugs on animals and people on behalf of the Department of Defense. And this is not just in Germany, though Germany is infamous for doing that. Um, this was also in, in the US. And I was wondering, what were what was the Department of Defense looking for?
0: Yeah, so this is like a very unethical and shameful chapter of US history. The Americans, we were actually inspired by the Nazis, which is not a good look at all, who were doing experiments with people um, using mescaline, um, people in the camps, also fueling their pilots on methamphetamine to keep them going. Um, so the US saw this happening, and this is um, post World War II, the height of the Cold War. Um, Americans were very concerned about Soviets or North Koreans developing some kind of like chemical mind controlling agent that they could use on um, U.S. soldiers or citizens. So uh, the U.S. Army and the CIA were like, huh, let's develop our own chemical mind control program. Some of your listeners have probably heard of MK Ultra. That was part of it. That was the CIA's um, branch of it. So the CIA was really interested in... Um, developing agents, like individual people who could kind of be their puppets. The army was interested in finding some kind of chemical that they could drop over like entire populations and cause everybody to go crazy. So the U.S. Army, we know in the 1950s, put MDMA on its list of chemicals of interest. Uh, What we don't know is whether the army actually gave it to humans um, because in i think it was let's see 1953 just looking at my notes here well sometime in the early 1950s um there was a guy named harold blauer and he checked himself into a mental institution here in manhattan a really respected place it was 1953. Ah, perfect okay Mm -hmm. thank you um (laughs) really respected institution because he was feeling super super depressed he'd just gone through a divorce and he was like you know i'm gonna potentially hurt myself i need to Get some help Um, what harold did not know is that that institution had contracted with the u.s army to test a number of these new substances mdma was on the list uh, but again we don't know if it was um, tested what harold got was mda which is a related compound um, and as part of his quote unquote treatment he was getting injections of this drug and he was even telling his doctors okay Whatever this is, like I don't like it, I don't want it. And they're like, no, no, you really need to have this. They, you know, they never told him what he was actually getting, um, and it wound up killing him. They wound up giving him a massive dose of MDMA, and um, a couple hours later, he was dead. They tried to write it off as a heart attack, um, but obviously it wasn't. And about twenty years later, in court, um, in a case his children had filed, the truth came up that he had actually been overdosed on this drug that he had, you know, been unethically given. Well, after that happened, um, the army backtracked, it was kind of like, Oh no, this moment where they're like, we should have done, um, tests on animals to test the the safety of these substances. So they're backtracking, they contracted with the um, University of Michigan to perform some animal studies. And we do know that at that time MDMA was given to lab animals. Um, it was found to be less toxic than MDA and some other compounds. Um, you know, no really crazy results or anything there. So whether or not MDMA was ever given to people as part of this really unethical army program is unknown. Um, I did find a doctoral student at the University of Michigan. He was in the um, chemistry department or pharmacology department, one of those, but he found out about his university's uh, history in this program and was just like horrified slash fascinated by what had been going on and really, really wanted to know if MDMA had actually been given to somebody. He got way further in his FOIA, Process than I did with the with the army trying to get records, and he found a citation to a document that seems to be the potential smoking gun for proving that MDMA was used in humans. It traced back to experiments being done at Tulane University in New Orleans. But when he reached out to the army to get this document, and I mean, again, he has a very clear citation. Someone got back to him and said, "Oh yeah, we uh, we can't find that. That's lost." So. Uh, it seems really conspiratorial. Uh, who knows? You know if it's actually lost or not. But again, it's one of these mysteries around MDMA that we just might not ever solve. You know whether MDMA was actually first given to an American, um, you know, a- against their will or without their consent. And I just think it's a really important point to make when we're now looking at giving MDMA to veterans and others to heal them of trauma, you know, caused in service of their country.
1: So, as you mentioned, um, the tennis player, um, I forget his first name, Blauer, um, ended up dying of an overdose of what they think was MDA, which, to be clear, is toxic AF. (laughs) Um, But it is not MDMA, which is different. Um, If there's a chemical difference, the chemical difference is a single oil nugget on the side. Um, And so I was wondering if we could... um, Kind of get into that a little bit. How does MDMA work pharmacologically and how does it differ from other similar drugs such as amphetamines, cocaine, or LSD? Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I will say, by the way, that um, MDA is more neurotoxic, but people do take it recreationally. So it's not like cyanide or something where you take it and you're just going to die. It is a psychedelic. It's supposed to be um, less sort of um, empathy causing as MDMA and more psychedelic. I actually have never taken it. It's on my list. So anyway, um dose the dose is, window yeah, is much dosage narrower. Is everything. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> like test your drugs, measure your drugs, everybody. Anyway, that's just a second. When we point. say the
1: dose <laughs> The dose window is narrower. So what what we mean is like (laughs) there the the phrase the dose makes poison is absolutely a cliche, but that does not mean it is untrue. There are a lot of drugs out there. Some of them are things like Tylenol, um, where there is a therapeutic window. There is a dose at which things work, right? You get below that dose, nothing happens. You get into that dose, you get fever reduction and pain reduction, and your swelling goes down. And you go too high. And that's where you get liver toxicity and that's in the case of of Tylenol um and so the therapeutic window is the gap where you see the effects that you want without the effects that you don't want and for some drugs that therapeutic window is gigantic it takes a ton of whatever drug it is to actually hurt you in others um such as for example fentanyl the therapeutic window is very small and it's very, very easy to go over that, right? It really depends on the drug. So for example, the therapeutic window of something like cannabis is really gigantic. Um, <laughs> and the therapeutic window of Tylenol is not. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, therapeutic windows aside, what do we know about how methylene dioxymethamphetamine works? And how does it differ from other amphetamines?
0: Yeah. So um People for years were trying to figure out this question. Um, You know, how does it work? And I must say, for the FDA to approve a new pharmaceutical... That you don't have to prove or show how it works. You just have to show that it's safe and efficacious. So this is a common misconception. Sh- yeah. So showing how MDMA works, um, isn't a requirement of FDA approval for um, using it therapeutically to treat PTSD. That said, there's a lot of people who definitely want to know how it works because first of all, we're curious how in the world is this like substance that you can take, you know, a handful of times, spaced months apart, able to give you or give some people, um, healing and benefits that last you know, years just from a few one-offs. How does that work? Um, also, if we know how something works, then we can um, better understand how to use it in a good way, how to minimize risks and harms, how to make it even better potentially. Um, so for years, people were really focused on uh, the transporters, the serotonin transporters that MDMA binds to in the brain. So MDMA binds to serotonin transporters, um, and Uh, I guess I'll back up here and say um, serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It's People describe it as sort of a jack-of-all-trades. It does all kinds of things for you. It regulates um, mood, appetite, sleep, um, and neurotransmitters are just chemical messengers in the brain. Um, So MDMA primarily works on serotonin, this jack-of-all-trade neurotransmitter, and it works by causing your neurons um, to not only leave serotonin in synapses so it's um, active for longer which is what ssris do they cause serotonin to kind of dump out or sorry not dump out they cause serotonin to remain in the synapse for longer um hopefully elevating mood that's what they're supposed to do mdma takes that process a step further and it actually causes your neurons to uh dump the serotonin out so your brain is flooded with up to 80% of your stored serotonin which is what gives people recreationally that like beautiful what they call rolling feeling you just feel so good you everything feels um so nice so pleasurable so much connection so much empathy so warm um you can really be in the moment um so that's what's happening with serotonin. At the same time, there's also um, trigger uh, trigger effects with oxytocin, you know, the so-called love hormone, um, and some other neuro- neurotransmitters that are released in the brain. Uh, people for years were really focused on, uh, you know, what ser- uh, what MDMA is doing with serotonin, and they thought, okay, that's going to be the key for figuring out how it works, and also the key for figuring out how other drugs like LSD work. Um, it seems like though that was um, sort of a red herring for what MDMA is actually doing in the brain. Um, And I'm just going to dive into the neuroscience now, if that's okay. Please. Okay, great. Let's do it. Um, So there's really exciting new research that came out um, a few years ago, and then another recent study earlier this year that shows that MDMA and indeed other psychedelics, including psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, and ibogaine are all acting to reopen what is called a critical period in the brain. And critical periods are these finite windows of learning, of malleability, when the brain can um, pick up new habits. And they usually happen in childhood. They exist so that we can set ourselves up with a lifetime of skills and habits and rules about how the world works and our place in it that will just set us up for success so we can you know, navigate our lives efficiently and productively and successfully. Um, learning a new language is a great example of a critical period. It's why kids can pick up a new language so much easier than adults do because their critical period for language learning is open. So some neuroscientists think that there's actually a critical period for basically every skill we have from walking and seeing and smelling and hearing to, uh, you know, speaking to interacting within a culture. Um, It's really fascinating stuff. But um, what these studies showed, and they came out of um, the lab of a neuroscientist named Gould Lin at Johns Hopkins University, is that when MDMA is taken in the right context, so not at a rave, but when you are primed to engage with your trauma, when you're thinking about your trauma, and when you're in a therapist's office with someone there to guide you um, to talk about that trauma and face that trauma. So when you're primed to deal with your trauma and you take MDMA, then it reopens a critical period for social reward learning that helps you just readdress uh, the the habits you formed around that trauma, like, you know, being afraid of noises, um, having insomnia, telling yourself you're a monster or, you know, that you're guilty or somehow to blame all these maladaptive habits that have formed around your trauma and have become really intractable because your brain has literally changed. So that's uh, PTSD causes lasting changes in the brain. Um, Someone with trauma has a very different brain than someone without. So the power of MDMA and these other psychedelics is that they actually allow you to go in and edit those connections and maladaptive habits you've formed and come out with durable lasting effects um, to let you go forward with, um, you know, new understanding of yourself. You know, I'm not a monster. I'm not guilty. Like I, you know, I was a victim. I couldn't help it. It's okay. You know, I, I feel empathy for others. People, I feel empathy for myself. Um, You know, some people who go through these therapies say that they felt love for the first time. Uh, It's really powerful stuff. And it seems if these studies are true that all that the power of these molecules come down to this ability to reopen critical periods. Um, And, you know, this hasn't been replicated. This has only been tested in one lab. um, And it was a mouse study, but it seems to track with what we know about, you know, people's lived experiences of going through psychedelic assisted therapy, what they say they they feel in the moment, um, how they subjectively say it works. And then the, again, the durability of the effects for some participants. Um, and the lab is really hoping that they can apply this finding to other therapeutic um, applications and not just uh things around trauma but for example motor learning critical periods so if instead of going into your therapy you know prime to think about your trauma and with a therapist there to talk about it what if you instead went into a physical therapy session um and you're a person who had just have a, had a stroke and you take mdma if you start doing uh physical therapy while on MDMA, can you reopen a motor learning critical period and potentially regain the skills you lost because of your stroke? So that's actually the next experiment that this lab is hoping to do. And you know, if they're right about um, basically set and setting being these things we can tinker with to reopen different critical periods, then it's just a really incredibly powerful idea and could open up a whole world
1: of different types of healing. But to be clear, that that has not been tested yet. Because yeah, I can see tested, some people yeah. getting yeah. really excited about that. Totally. Yeah. But they're they're gearing up to like, test it. are yeah, they're trying to get funding to test it. It has not been tested yet. And also um, it would depend a lot on things like the site of your stroke. So for example, strokes actually cause, you know, brain cell death. And if you have brain cell death in areas that, for example, are in your motor cortex, there's no amount of like relearning that's gonna regrow that stuff. Um you know, but if you are, for example, if there's changes in kind of um, brain cell death that might be rewired around, such as the transition from the primary motor cortex to actual neuronal signals, then you might have a difference. I think it's going to have to be tested. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. 100%. But, um, but I also wanted to go back because, as you mentioned, um, we approve drugs for clinical usage all the time without knowing how they work and Mm -hmm. i just wanted to follow up on that because sometimes when i tell people that they absolutely lose their minds at me oh really like (laughs) what do you mean We don't know how aspirin works because uh, I hate to tell you guys this. We don't know how aspirin works. What do you mean? We don't know how uh, antidepressants work because we don't. Um, and <laughs> the, yep. for example, you know, a lot of people think that it's like increasing amounts of serotonin in the spaces, the synapses, the right, spaces, between right. neurons, and it does indeed do that, but that is not how it works. Um, and the the answer to that is. We have, it takes a very, very long time to really get into the absolute like nitty gritty understanding of what these drugs do and how they do it. And most people don't want to wait the 40 years (laughs) (laughs) between understanding that a drug works and understanding why it works to save people's lives with it. And there's pros and cons to this, right? You can end up approving drugs that do work, but also, you know, cause heart side effects or, you know, there's there's all sorts of, you know, pros and cons associated. But in general, the idea is we really don't want to withhold drugs that can do incredible things just because we don't know every single thing about them. And that goes for some drugs that we've been taking for very, very, very long times. Um, But I also wanted to go back and ask about kind of the differences between MDMA and some of these other drugs. Because Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, MDMA does what we call dumping. So you have these serotonin (laughs) transporters and they sit on the side of the little gaps between your neurons, right? And what they usually do is they slurp up excess Uh, serotonin. You also have these for dopamine. You have these for norepinephrine. Um, And they slurp up the extra chemical from your synapse back into the cell and recycle it. Why? Because efficiency. So um, we know that there are many drugs that affect these transporters in different ways. Um, Cocaine, for example, Mm -hmm. blocks the dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine transporters. It just kind of plugs them for a very short period of time, that increases the amount of those chemicals in the synapse, right? The stronger effects of amphetamine, right, actually cause that transporter to start basically vomiting into the synapse. It's puking, it's puking dopamine into the synapse. (laughs) Um, And so amphetamines work like that. MDMA does too. What is the difference between those two things? honestly i don't know and i don't know that
0: anybody knows so in the um johns hopkins trial i mentioned Gouldolin used cocaine as um a control you know she wanted to make sure this isn't just something we're seeing across all mind-altering substances uh so she did not find that cocaine reopened this critical uh period for social reward learning and her theory about this is that cocaine induces basically plasticity all over the brain. And that's why it's so pleasurable and also so addicting. It's just this feeling of hyperplasticity all over the brain. Whereas MDMA's plasticity is targeted. It's targeted in the areas um, for this critical period for social reward learning or if she's right for motor learning or whatever. So it's almost like um, this really precise um, procedure that can be made using MDMA to target specific things versus cocaine, which is just like this hyperplasticity inducer all over the brain, really sloppy, like no precision whatsoever. Um, And just a side note, there are uh, labs that are trying to engineer the psychedelic part of psychedelics out of them. So to have an MDMA version that doesn't cause the mind altering effects that you can just go home and like take like an aspirin or something. And the fear there is that in the worst case, they might just be creating a new cocaine because it won't have that targeted effect that you really need to be a part of subjectively to do through practice or, you know, through um, goal oriented learning. So, but as far as like, why is cocaine not doing this? Why is meth not doing this? Why is MDMA doing it? Um, that level of chemical and pharmaceutical understanding is beyond my, um, a- a- ability to answer. And I honestly don't know if anybody has maybe like a really smart pharmacist could, do you have any insights?
1: <laughs> um, I did actually just want to add though, that, um, we hadn't discussed LSD because, oh, yeah. um, MDMA is much more closely related to the amphetamines. That includes methamphetamine and just amphetamine. Um, LSD, we group drugs like MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin into psychedelics because of their subjective effects, not Mm -hmm. because of how they work. Um, So LSD actually also acts on the chemical messenger serotonin, but it does so by acting on different receptors. Um, and so we've been talking about transporters, which are the little things on the sides of your neurons that slurp excess stuff up, but you also have receptors and those receptors are on the other side. Um, though they can also be on the same side, um, of your neurons, right. And the serotonin or dopamine, because there are dopamine receptors or norepinephrine, there are norepinephrine receptors. You have a lot of receptors. Your membranes are busy, um, the serotonin can bind to those receptors. And it's kind of a lock and key mechanism where it binds. And depending on which lock it binds in, that receptor can have different effects. And I say, depending on which lock, because serotonin is into diversity. We <laughs> know that there are 14 different serotonin receptors. We hypothesize that there are 21 um, possibly even more than that, like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, and LSD in particular acts on a few of those receptors. Um, and what's really interesting is that some of those receptors are actually really closely related to the receptors that are acted on by anti-migraine medications. Um, LSD is much more closely related in terms of its actual effects to um, anti-migraine and some anti-epileptic medications. Um, so <laughs> pharmacology is complicated. But I did want to come back to the question of plasticity. Um, because you're talking about this radical plasticity, but you also note in the book that it is not neuroplasticity. And I was curious as to what exactly that meant. Oh, okay. So are you talking about the plasticity of plasticity? This metaplasticity? I, I honestly, I didn't <laughs> yeah. get it. So I'd love clarity. Okay. okay. So um, yeah,
0: I mean, uh first of all my background is in ecology so all of this neuroscience stuff is completely new to me i literally read neuroscience textbooks before writing this book and spent hours on zoom um going over this with gould Olin, that neuroscientist and like fact checking with her um so i might not be the best person to get into the nitty gritty of the neuroscience but here we go um so Plasticity is just the ability of neurons to make new connections. Um, you know, Lots of drugs do it. Cocaine does it. Um, it's why, again,
1: people think it's so pleasurable. Uh, yeah, honestly, so- plasticity happens all the time, whether or, yeah. or not you're doing cocaine. Like, exactly. you- <laughs> yeah. Plasticity is your brain changing in response to its environment. And sometimes that environment is cocaine. And sometimes that <laughs> environment is breakfast. And like, yeah, your brain, it's changing all the time. That's beautifully put. Thank you. Um, So what we're talking about here with
0: the psychedelics is uh, the ability to induce the plasticity of plasticity, metaplasticity, as Guldalin calls it, which is just the um, ability of the brain to uh, go into these original critical period learning periods and change. Um, Yeah, it's really hard to explain. (laughs)
1: Okay. So um, I did want to... We got to move on because we only have so much time. Um, I did want to go on to a little bit more about MDMA um, and whether or not it is habit forming. Because of course, we know that methamphetamine, very habit forming, also dangerous. Amphetamines, habit forming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cocaine, habit forming. Uh, LSD, not habit forming. Yep. Um, MDMA does also does not appear to be super habit forming in humans. So there are plenty of studies that show that rats will self-administer MDMA. So when we go to study um, drugs of abuse, right, drugs that are... Considered to be potentially addictive. Um, And I say this as someone who has a PhD in pharmacology, (laughs) who studied this for my PhD. We do something called drug self-administration, which is basically you ask a rat, you give a rat a lever, and if the rat presses the lever, the rat gets coke. And then you see if the rat presses the lever again. This is called self-administration, and you can get rats to self-administer a whole bunch of things. You can get them to self-administer sugar. You can get them to self-administer cocaine. You can get them to self-administer MDMA. Um, And I was wondering about this because MDMA feels great. It feels wonderful. It gives you this amazing feeling of love, but it also doesn't divorce you from yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You still retain kind of your sense of ego which is very different from LSD and psilocybin which kind of induce this kind of ego less experience. Um and so MDMA in that way sounds exactly like the sort of thing that people would want to be on all the time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so in your personal experience, why do you think they're not? So some people
0: do try to do this. Um well I will say that what constitutes um, MDMA abuse or overuse is really subjective. So my husband, for example, in the late 90s was you know a 19 year old raver kid going to a rave literally every weekend in Denver in a warehouse and doing MDMA. So once a week, um, but you know he wasn't mixing with alcohol. He was getting enough sleep. Um, he literally only did MDMA, and that was fine for his like very young, robust nineteen-year-old brain. Um, if he did that now, as a how old is he? If like forty-six-year-old person, I think it would completely knock him on the ass, and it would have detrimental effects on his life. So again it's really subjective about like where you are in your life, like what your own anatomy is, um all that stuff. So I'm not saying that doing it every week is a good idea, but it might not just automatically be a bad idea in terms of the impacts on your brain. The rule of thumb is to take it no more than once every three or four months. So seasonally, but that's just something that's been kind of developed through like raver lore over the years and, you know, therapist experimenting with it. Um, it's not tested because we just haven't had um, the support to test recreational use or even therapeutic use until recently. Okay. So going back to why it's not really a huge drug of abuse. Um, if you do MDMA a lot, um and again it's really subjective what this a lot is uh, it stops feeling good you start getting all the negative effects of the drug which is like this jitteriness cl- jaw clenching the uh, you know wiggling eyes um you know the na- the nausea and um potential like um
1: intestinal issues uh not being able to the sleep clinical phrase we use for those like motor things is stereotypies uh, ha, ha, um, yes. you get these kind of like stereotopies, which are things like um in in rodents it usually looks like jaw grinding you see them kind of yep. like grinding their jaws yep um people's eyes bounce around yes. people also grind their jaws yes
0: yeah <laughs> uh, they like, twi- not fun twitchy stuff yeah. all the twitchy stuff that's great yeah the, you get more of the twitchy stuff um And some people also uh, say that, you know, if they're doing MDMA too much, they start to have memory issues, they get anxiety, um, you know, they can't sleep, they feel off, they're just not themselves. Um, So MDMA overuse tends to be a self-correcting problem because, you know, you're just not getting anything out of it. You know, you're trying to do it and you're getting all these negative effects, you're not getting the pleasure anymore. And um, for some people, they actually lose the magic of mdma forever and again this is something that's never been studied that i think is really fascinating um you know at some point like people seem to just like hit a wall so this actually happened to Anne shulgin who's the wife of alexander shulgin who's um a a Bay Area or he was a Bay Area chemist who resynthesized MDMA in 1975 and basically like kicked off this whole therapy thing and inadvertently kicked off this whole ecstasy thing. Anyway, Anne Shulgin, his wife would take MDMA once a week and it was her writing age. She was writing a book and she would take it to kind of plug into like the mindset and the world's words would just flow out of her. And she actually, before she died, she described MDMA to me as her best friend. Um, well, she lost her best friend because she took it so much. Um, She lost the magic of MDMA. She was getting only the negative side effects. And she literally waited like 10 years at one point and then retook MDMA to see if she could regain that magic. And it, it still, it was gone. It was just gone. So some people can wait after, you know, taking too much MDMA and losing that magic, and they can get the magic back. And some people just can't and we don't know why there's a difference there um but that's really why it's not this um not something like cocaine or meth um, because it just doesn't have the same appeal as far as um, addiction forming patterns
1: of behavior so I'm going to skim over a bunch of the history, which you go into very in-depth in the book. But after the synthesis in 1912 at Merck, um, it kind of disappeared. It emerged again in the 1930s. And then um, chemists began to make it again in the 1970s. Um, And it very, very quickly began to be used in therapeutic settings. Um, And what was really interesting is that that followed uh, once the therapeutic stuff Began, there was a kind of large growth in recreational use. And so the more recent past of MDMA, like LSD and similar psychedelics, has been a lot of regulatory crackdowns. And this is interesting to me because we know, for example, that legal crackdowns on things like marijuana and cocaine were a lot about who was seen as doing those drugs, specifically people of color, right? There was a very strong thread of racism in the scheduling of cannabis and the scheduling of cocaine. Um, But MDMA and LSD do not have that aura around them. They are kind of big for white people. Why did they end up targeted by these regulatory crackdowns. Hmm. So these are um, two different reasons, but related
0: storylines. So LSD was targeted because it was being used by the counterculture, by the hippies who were opposing the Vietnam War and basically threatening, you know, those in power at the time. So you know, you can't make um, you know, political demonstrations illegal, but you can make. This drug illegal and thereby target your political enemies, which is what happened with LSD. And that's why we got the Controlled Substances Act of 1971, which criminalized LSD and, you know, a number of other substances, including MDA, that, you know, one that killed Harold Blauer that we were talking about earlier, that's related to MDMA, but not MDMA. Um, because MDA was made illegal, um, you know, at this point, uh, It wasn't in the therapeutic community yet. Um, Shulgin synthesized it in 75, but there are records from the early 70s that indicate that probably just some really smart chemists who were making drugs for recreational users figured out that they could just, um, you know, add you know, an extra molecule here or there, and make MDMA. Add that extra methyl group to make MDMA from MDA, and this way they could get around the scheduling of 71 for MDA and still make money legally. Um, and we know that because there are some records of seizures of what police thought were MDA, but was actually MDMA from like 71 in um, in Illinois, and then there was elaborate in Tennessee, for example. So we don't know anything about those chemists or who their customers were, but it that's really fascinating that, you know, the scheduling of LSD and MDA led to MDMA slowly, you know, percolating up in the recreational scene. Um, anyway, why did MDMA get cracked down? Okay. So after the Controlled Substances Act came up, came up um, drug use became this really easy political scapegoat. You know, you could point to those, um, you know, those crazy hippies undermining society and like, you know, uh, yeah threatening our children or whatever as a way to get political support um this was the height of the drug war you know uh, timothy leary the lsd professor from harvard became you know public enemy number 1 um just a really really crazy time full of misinformation. And as MDMA emerged on the scene in the mid 70s and then you know very quietly at first spread among therapists but then broke its way into the recreational scene in the early 80s. Um, it was emerging at this time of um, drug uh, persecution. Just fervent war on drug mentality. So basically, the DEA, which had been um, recently rebranded from an earlier institution from the 20s, was just like hot to schedule anything that that was a mind altering substance. Like it was just this knee jerk reaction of like anything that is a mind altering drug that's not alcohol or or tobacco has to be you know scheduled like no good. Um, so when MDMA finally came um, onto the radar of the DEA, like they're reaction was just of course schedule 1 like dangerous dangerous substance um and there was also a um an unfortunate incident where mdmas neurotoxicity was conflated with that of mda which as we talked about earlier is way more neurotoxic um so uh this became like our inter- national news you know mdma is going to like uh you know melt all of our brains and you know kill these recreational users and um that's that's why I wound up getting scheduled
1: um and you didn't mention this specifically but what I found really fascinating um in this book is that there are a bunch of major characters um in this book uh some of them are people like Rick Dublin and Michael Clegg um they both were and are huge fans of MDMA um (laughs) and they are you know trying to in various ways get them into the hands of people um and they are both characters Yeah, they're definitely characters. Um, And it was really fascinating (laughs) to me uh, how your book highlighted the role that personalities, specific personalities can play in the advancement or lack thereof of scientific and therapeutic fields. Um, And I was wondering, how do you think these men affected the history, the recent history of MDMA?
0: Yeah. Okay, so these are two characters who definitely profoundly shaped the history of MDMA in very different ways. Um I would say that Michael Clegg almost could have been like anyone in a way. I mean, he had a very particular personality. Michael Clegg was the uh, basically the biggest dealer of MDMA in the 80s in the US and probably abroad. Um he was like the kingpin of um an MDMA group called the Texas Group. Um he was uh, he was a person who described himself in life as a searcher. He felt like he was destined for great things, destined to like shape humanity in some way, destined to bring enlightenment to, to the masses, but also really interested in enriching himself, um, really materialistic. Um, and, yeah. you know, he had started out life trying to become a priest and, you know, he dropped out of like the Catholic priest school, seminary, um, but, you know, retained his like fake ID as a priest. Um, So he was like, he was kind of a wheeler and dealer, but with this sort of guru sheen to it really into yoga, you know, no surprise there. Um, but he uh he built this MDMA basically an empire where he would just pump MDMA out to the recreational scene. They were called the Texas group because he um a lot of his associates were based in Dallas, Texas. And they helped to um seed a really big nightclub there called the Start Club that opened in the early eighties and was like the place to be for a while. Um, you know, celebrities would come, um, you know president's children would come. It was just like the hot scene, but the lubricant at the, the start club, the social lubricant wasn't alcohol, it was MDMA. And it was just like this beautiful moment in you know Southern history where people of all walks of life could come together on the dance floor and really just be themselves and like hug it out. Um, so Michael Clegg, his role was introducing MDMA to the recreational scene but also catching the DEA's attention because he was just so um out there. You know, he just he was not like containing himself. He was trying to get MDMA as much attention as possible and into as many hands as possible. Um and that's why the DEA noticed. Um but again, you know, this this kind of could have been anybody. Like somebody it was inevitable was going to come along and like Push MDMA hard and catch the attention of the government. Um, You know, in that way, I would not call Michael Clegg extraordinary or special. He was just like a guy who wanted to get rich and also like had a really big ego about like his place in the world and like, you know, what his. How
1: dare you not call him special? He was meant to change the world. Sorry.
0: Yeah, Michael, if you're listening to this, like it really hurts my feelings that you wouldn't talk to me for this, for the book. But anyway, yeah, no, he, yeah, he just seems like a piece of work. I mean, like just the words people who worked with him used to describe him. It was just like liar, fraud, like laughing stock, like, you know, not not well liked by his former associates, who he actually wound up turning into the DEA and getting, you know, sentenced to federal prison. Um okay, on the flip side of that we have this guy Rick Doblin, who you mentioned, who I really do think is a very unique personality and um if it weren't for this person, I really don't think we would be where we are today in terms of MDMA assisted therapy making its way for FDA approval. Um, so Rick Doblin was um, a Jewish kid raised outside of Chicago, and he grew up with tales around the dinner table of the Holocaust, and he developed this mentality where he felt like at any moment, like all the people around him could just go crazy and start like murderously killing everybody. And he really wanted to find a solution for um, not just the suffering of the world, um, but also this human tendency to otherize people. You know, to you know, you're part of this ethnic group, I'm part of that one. You have this religion, I have that. You're from this side of the you know border, whatever. Um, to show people that you know we're all made of the same stuff, that we have more in common than different. Um, so. Rick was looking for a way to do this and he stumbled upon MDMA and you know found found sort of an answer in this molecule that it's you know like we were talking about earlier a way to like cut through the um the the normal chatter and distraction of life and of you know labels and boxes we put ourselves in that we put other people in and really um you know just kind of lay bare to people like that just really basic messages but but messages that are profound that you know connection and love are um the stuff of life the things that matter that we do have more in common um you know that we're all just you know trying to have a good life make our way in this world um so Rick's idea was okay you know we can use MDMA for for therapy for making people better but we can also use MDMA to enhance what he called well people um people who don't have a mental health diagnosis but who just want to like um, you know, they'll explore themselves to strengthen and deepen their relationships with themselves, with loved ones, which with humanity, with the planet, etc. Um, Rick heard about the scheduling of MDMA in um, 1984. He knew that this was an impending thing. Um, he and a group of other sort of pro-MDMA therapy fans. And he went to Michael Clegg's house in California to try to talk Michael Clegg out, not of, okay, you need to stop selling MDMA, but can you just like, you know, cool your engines a little bit and be a little bit more discreet and not be so overt and just like flaunting your like drugs, you know, in the DEA's face. And he and um, a friend of his, Debbie Harlow, who was also working on this case, like they talked to Michael from basically like the early evening until like three in the morning trying to talk this guy out of it and michael would just go on these like monologues about like you know you know consciousness and whatever but finally at the end of the night michael was exhausted they were exhausted they got to nowhere and michael clegg was like you know frankly if it becomes illegal i'll just make more money and then um rick was like okay thanks for your honesty like In that case, can you at least give us a donation? Because he and Debbie Harlow and this group of therapists and professors from places like Harvard were trying to bring the DEA to court to um, challenge them and show them that MDMA shouldn't be A strictly banned schedule one substance, it should be like schedule two or three so that they could still easily do research on it and they could still use it therapeutically. Um, And they needed money to do that. So Rick was like, give us money to support this campaign that we're basically having to do because of you. Um, And Michael said, Okay, you know, I'm not going to give you any money. But what I will do is give you a donation of MDMA for the cause, and then
1: you can sell it and make money to fund your court case. Um, I think my favorite thing about this is that he didn't actually give it to them. He just gave them a discount.
0: Yeah. Well, he gave he gave Rick like a certain number of pills for free, but then he also gave him a discount on like, he's like, okay, that's your cap. Now you have to like buy this wholesale MDMA from me. Um, but yeah, so Debbie was like, absolutely not. This is a horrible idea. We're not going to align ourselves with this like drug dealer who's basically the reason we're here in the first place. But Rick was just really pragmatic and was like, no, like I'll do anything I can to like forward the MDMA cause I will take these drugs and I'm going to like sell them and use that money to fund this court case and um that's what Rick did and it really caused divisions with him and Debbie and him and like the other people working on this case um, so fast forward they did take the DEA to court um and they actually this is crazy but they won the case the judge sided with Rick Doblin and his associates and said you know what you're right mdma does have clinical applications you've you've proved that through all the testimony from therapists um so therefore it can't be a schedule one substance which is defined as having um, no currently accepted medical value um and he's like it should be a lower schedule um but because uh of just like fiddly bureaucracy and the type of case this was they the dea didn't have to abide by that judgment they just It was basically a suggestion for them so they were like whatever we're not listening to you you're clearly brainwashed we're going to do what we wanted to do the whole time and schedule it anyway so mdma was scheduled on schedule one strictly banned substance um but to bring it all back to rick doblin um Basically, everybody gave up at that point and thought, okay, this is a lost cause. There's no like clawing this drug back. Um, it's just gonna be something we can never use again. Um, Rick Doblin was just so obsessed and hard-headed that he just kept going. And like nobody believed he could do it, but he formed a nonprofit group called Um MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Um, and they've been the leading force for bringing MDMA back into the light of scientific. And social respectability since then, Um, you know, just trying to get the clinical trials going. And um, I guess Rick's stroke of genius here was to work within the system instead of trying to like advocate outside of the system for change. He basically went to Harvard and got a PhD and figured out like how to work within this extremely complicated bureaucracy that is the DEA and the FDA and other branches of federal government to like Okay, how do you actually do clinical trials with a schedule one substance? Like, what is the paperwork I actually need to do? What is the permissions I actually need to get? And just like has been like doing that for almost 40 years now, which is like kind of crazy.
1: So as you mentioned, Rick Doblin founded this group called MAPS, which has worked very hard um, to promote the therapeutic use specifically of MDMA. Um, And this is where we're going to put in our content warning um, about Mm. sexual abuse. And if that's not cool with you, skip the next five minutes and come back or just skip entirely. It's cool. I don't judge. Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the things that ended up happening um, is that the thing is drugs like MDMA, as well as other psychedelics, can make people very vulnerable. Um, And so there have been issues of sexual abuse between therapists and their patients um and this has caused a massive issue um both in the media and also within the movement to use mdma in the clinic Um, how has this changed kind of the movement has it changed the movement should it change the movement
0: yeah definitely um so i will say this isn't a new problem so back you know when mdma was still legal um and even after it was made illegal and was still being used in underground therapeutic practices there were cases of therapists like well-known therapists being brought to court or sued by patients for um sexual assault while they were under the influence of mdma so one of the really respected therapists who testified at the dea court case in 1985 he later lost his license for um for abusing a patient sexually um so this is a an old issue but um you know it's one that continues to plague the field and i should also say that this isn't an issue that's unique to psychedelic assisted therapy it is not um no. at all yeah like pay uh, Therapists abuse their patients a lot. Um, it's more prevalent than you th- than you'd think. I think it's I cite this in my book, but it might be like one out of 10 have said that they've had sexual relations with a patient. And that's just therapists who are admitting to this. So, you know, it's really a big problem. Um, and I think it's like just a problem of being human. But when psychedelics are added to the mix, things get even worse. Um, Because like you said, people are vulnerable, people are in this open state. And one thing that Gould Olin at Johns Hopkins warns is that this could actually re-traumatize them in a way that like leaves them in a much worse place. Because think about like laying there with your critical period open, your your neurons are ready to reform new habits and like learn new things. And then you're violated. Um, You know, that's going to be a whole new level of trauma that is just like, much much worse than if you had been sober which is still absolutely terrible and not acceptable. Um so in more recent trials uh, there has been one case of sexual abuse this was in the phase 2 trial that maps was sponsoring um and one just to back up for a second one thing that happened um In deciding how to design these trials um, years ago, as a sort of, um, I guess, a guardrail against sexual abuse happening, is to assign a two person therapy team to each MDMA assisted therapy subject. And that team has to be um, at least a man and a woman, or, you know, to, it's supposed to bring kind of balance, like the male and the female energy or whatever, but also a check, you know, having like a woman there in the room to make sure, or, you know, a man. Because women can abuse patients too. Um, but that doesn't always work as we saw in the phase two trial. So this was a husband-wife team um, in Vancouver. And um, they didn't abuse, sexually abuse this patient when she was under the influence of MDMA. But after she wrapped up her sessions, um, they kind of kept her on as like a helper in their house, like doing things for them. It's very unclear. And um, they the man in the the man of the therapy team wound up sexually abusing her for months on end before she escaped. Um, and this uh, it did explode into the media, I think two years ago. It was while I was writing this book. And um, yeah, it really, I think it's really important because it caused everybody to kind of stop and think about this issue in a serious way about, okay, what are we actually going to do to prevent this from happening? There's no way to actually prevent it 100% from happening. Um, that's just you know how things work. But one thing we can do is make sure that there are checks and balances in terms of power and what you can do um, for holding that power accountable. So right now, MDMA-assisted therapy is illegal. People are having to go to underground therapists and seek it out. And if something bad happens to them in that context, then there's no accountability. There's no like group you can report them to. Um, you know, you're gonna have to admit that you were breaking the law too. Uh, but what people are trying to do now is set up psychedelic therapy um, professional organizations so people therapists can get certified. And there's also this group that you know you can. You know have some sort of accountability to the therapist's behavior so if a line is crossed uh they that can be reported to the group and there can be real consequences so it's not a perfect solution there are no perfect solutions but it's definitely one that people are fortunately working on and a lot of that
1: has been driven by this case that was um that came to light a couple of years ago and it was also um, part of the reason the case ended up kind of eventually spurring this kind of change is because uh, maps and Rick Doblin did not really respond to it as, as they probably should have. Um, They kind of went with, Oh man, this, this happens. We're sorry for you.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I agree. Maps of course says that they did everything they could. Um, You know, they, they paid the patient um, 15,000 Canadian dollars to get therapy to deal with what happened with her. They didn't make her sign an NDA or anything like that. Um, but some people say, you know, they should have done more. Uh, you asked Rick Doblin that and he's like, well, what more could we have done? You know, we, we changed the rules. We had already booted these two therapists out before this incident even came to light. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a really difficult situation. And I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to think of like what what should be done and what more could be done. I'm not defending maps at all, but you know, uh, people
1: have very strong opinions about it. Um, so I did want to go back to kind of the therapeutic use, um, which is a thread that runs throughout the book. Um, MDMA is being studied especially for things like PTSD. Um, and as you spoke of earlier, it kind of can reopen these critical periods. Um, it may be able to help people kind of face um, traumatic experiences in a kind of supported way um, that helps them to better process. Um, And one of the things that you note in the section on PTSD treatment is that the people who take it for therapeutic reasons do not Mm. feel blissed out. They don't feel loved. They don't feel, well, sometimes they feel loved, but they don't feel happy. They don't, feel like dancing. <laughs> they no, don't feel yeah. the things that people feel when they take it recreationally. Um and I was wondering why you think that is.
0: Yeah, um I think it's just again like going back to the way this critical period thing works, like it's set in setting, you know, which is like this thing the hippies developed to talk about, you know, setting yourself for like a good trip or a bad trip. Like if you take LSD in a hospital environment while you're strapped to a table, you're probably going to have a really bad trip versus if you take it like, you know, in a beautiful forest on a sunny day, set in setting, it's your mindset and the actual setting you're in. So if you're taking it at a rave or, you know, at home with a partner, um, and you're just like looking for a great time, you're probably going to have a great time. But if you are doing it in a therapist office where you're intentionally engaging with, um, basically like, some of the worst things that have ever happened to you in your life, um, you're not going to get that blissed out feeling cause you're, you know, engaging with that particular critical period. And also just like doing this really heavy work of, you know, dealing with your trauma head on. Um, so the nice thing about MDMA though, is it makes, it lowers the fear barrier, um, that allows you to actually address that trauma head on in a way that people in sober therapy don't seem to be able to do, Um, you know, because it's just like, too horrible, too awful, too uncomfortable to deal with it head on. Um, So yeah, I mean, I've talked to lots of people who have done MDMA assisted therapy, and nobody is like, wow, yeah, that was a really fun thing. That was like an ecstatic experience. Um, I've heard that it's, you know, really painful, really hard work, but ultimately, you know, you come out of it, with a worthwhile experience. And yeah, some people do say, you know, they had this incredible feeling of love and connection, um, really powerful, but again, not like this,
1: like physical ecstasy thing. Like you think of when you think of ravers. Um, and to be clear, when we talk about the importance of context in drug use, that matters for every drug. It's not just MDMA. <laughs> you know, For example, we give stimulants, actual psychoactive stimulants to people with ADHD. Um, and because we are giving it to them in a therapeutic context and they are expecting therapeutic effects, mm. it's not fun. It is in mm-hmm. fact, for many people, the opposite of fun. Um, and so the importance of context just cannot be overstated. Um, and at the end of the same is true of alcohol. For example, people who have mm-hmm. alcohol in negative contexts are not going to enjoy themselves. Um, and so, you know, context with drug administration is just really, really important. Yeah, it's a really um, great point. And so, as you are clear in the book, um, much of the book is about the therapeutic potential of MDMA. And MDMA is not without negative effects. Um especially when used recreationally, people have died both in the past and recently from overdoses, from side effects. And this is the reality of a lot of drugs, not just MDMA. It's much less deadly than other drugs, including legal ones like alcohol. Um, and so I really liked the sections that you had in the book on harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um So people may have heard of harm reduction uh, in the context of things like opiates, um, whereas it's extremely critical. Um, But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how harm reduction works for MDMA. Yeah, well, um, such a
0: great question, and I'm really happy you brought that up. Um, One thing that seems really obvious to me now, but wasn't when I started this book process, was that so many of the harms of MDMA and indeed of other illegal drugs stem from the fact that they are illegal, that they're prohibited. So people who use these drugs have to seek them uh, from the black market. So that immediately opens up all kinds of problems. So first of all, you don't know what is in your drug or how powerful that drug is unless you test it. And um, you know, a lot of people don't even know they can test their drugs or some people use home test kits, which just aren't that precise. Um, I personally have started mailing my drugs samples to a lab in spain called energy control and for um a relatively reasonable price they will professionally lab test your drugs so i now know not only if my mdma contains any adulterants i know the percent purity it is so even if your mdma is pure mdma um, if you don't know the purity you can potentially uh Misdose yourself. And this is what happened to the daughter of um, a woman I interviewed for the book. Um, Her daughter Martha accidentally took too much MDMA, um, you know, more than three times the normal dose. um, And it was almost pure MDMA. And she wound up dying because, you know, she just OD'd on this MDMA. So um, in terms of harm reduction, the first thing that I just really emphasize to everybody i talk to and like on every podcast is to test your drugs um you know don't I, I do not take drugs now that i have not tested um also just education so um you know these drugs are illegal they are heavily stigmatized that's starting to change now which is great but they're still stigmatized like trying to tell my parents i was writing a book about mdma was not a fun process, for example, like there's a lot of stigma around drug use, but that means that there's not a lot of great information about harm reduction. Um, And that's just simple rules of thumb, like um, take, take breaks. If you're going to go dancing, like MDMA, it actually increases your internal body temperature and it also um, blocks your ability of your, of your body to release heat. So if you add in rigorous exercise, like dancing all night in a club with poor ventilation, um, you're increasing your risk of heat stroke. So, you know, take breaks, drink water to stay hydrated, Um, you know, just like these simple rules of thumb that could be communicated um, really easily to us if we could just go to a pharmacist, for example, and buy MDMA and have like a little set of rules on the back or, um, you know, a pharmacist who says, okay, well, where are you planning to take this? Okay, here are like the things you need to do. Here's the amount you should do. Um, So education
1: and drug testing are the biggest harm reduction things. Um, and finally, unfortunately, we are way over time and like, I'm sorry, but also it's <laughs> fine. Um, so one of the things that really comes through in this book is how specific people and their agendas and their personalities can really influence how a drug is perceived and then actually regulated by the wider public. Mm mm-hmm. Um, and you make clear also how the media played a role in this. Um, and of course, you and I are the media.
0: We are. <laughs> um, and
1: I was wondering, what do you think is the take-home message of books like this to people like us? Mm, people like us, like um,
0: the media? Yeah. Oh, um, I guess the take-home, that's a great question. Nobody's answered it or asked me that before um i guess the big take-home is to like stop and think before you just like make assumptions and you know churn out that story i know we're all busy especially these days on deadline being paid very little um you know gotta like produce that content um but yeah taking time to think about who's delivering the message to you and why they're delivering the message and you know what agenda they have and um you know speaking to outside sources so in the Um, In the 80s and 90s, the media message here and in the UK and elsewhere was just one of like absolute hysteria and MDMA being this like, you know, deadly killer of children. And yeah, MDMA does cause some deaths, but it's compared to the millions of people who take it every year. It's really, really like minuscule um and then you know thinking about in comparison to the number of deaths caused by alcohol for example but nobody really stopped to think about that it seems um you know everybody was just caught up in regurgitating the message that was ultimately coming from politicians who were using this like mass mdma hysteria for votes just like LSD was used in the 70s um so yeah just being critical thinkers and if at all possible taking your time and speaking with a number of sources and checking the scientific literature and
1: um, yeah, following your own curiosity. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us and for helping us to feel the love. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel Newer and her book, I Feel Love, MDMA, and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World, we've got links for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. And as you're aware by now, this podcast is heading off into the sunset pretty soon at the end of 2023. If you want to help us go out with a bang, we want to hear from you. Send an email, a note, a short audio clip to feedback at scienceforthepeople.ca, and we might include it in our final episode. We would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us
0: on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Michelle Saunders.